Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We're also going to read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the middle of a series that we are calling home. And the whole premise of the series is that we believe the whole reason Jesus came was to bring us home to the Father. And so the way that we've been talking about this series is that uh, you'll notice there's a fully set table over here. And, and as I see this table, I just I kind of have anticipation because I think a meal is coming. You know, I'm ready to sit down at the table with close friends and family, and, anti- and I anticipate that meal that we're going to have together. And so what we've said is that we all long for home and we all long for a table too. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb when King Jesus returns as the ruling and reigning King of the world and we enter into His presence fully. But we've also recognized the fact that we are not yet there. And so the question is, how do we live in the already when it's not yet here? And that's what we've been talking about in this series. Um, Recently, I was reading a book to my kids. It's this folk tale called The Three Trees. And the premise of the book is this, is that there's these three trees. And these trees, you know, they're like any trees. They have hopes and dreams for themselves, you know. They, they want to be something when they grow up. And, and there's three different trees. And the trees are an oak tree, a pine tree, and a fig tree. And the oak tree wanted to grow up and be a mighty ship that would carry a king. But unbeknownst to that oak tree when it was younger, it would grow up to be a fishing boat. didn't look like it would be carrying a king as a fishing boat. It was made into this industrious, blue-collar fishing boat. How could it ever hold royalty? Next, the pine tree. The pine tree wanted to grow up and be this towering, tall pine tree like we have in Georgia, those sweet Georgia pines that fall on your house when the storm comes, right? They get huge. They grow tall. It wanted to point people to God, but instead it was struck by lightning early on in its life and thrown into a pile of scrap lumber. And lastly, there was a fig tree. It wanted to be built into an ornate chest to hold the world's finest treasures. And so uh, the carpenter came and harvested the tree, took took it back to his shop, and started making something with it. But instead of, making, instead of making a treasure chest, he made a little manger for his animals uh, to be in. 
And you see where the story's going. The oak tree that was the fishing boat, it did hold a king. It just held a different kind of king. A, a, a blue-collar king like Jesus who would come and be amongst blue-collar fishermen and share life and disciple them. And, and uh, the fig tree, uh, it did hold a king as well. It did hold the world's finest treasure. King Jesus as He was born in that manger. And the pine tree that was thrown into the scrap lumber became the cross that He bore for you and I. See, these folktales are about trees and they represent really our desire and need. Ultimately, we think we don't need the cross in our flesh. We think about Christmas and we think about the cradle and we think about how sweet little baby Jesus was in that cradle. But ultimately, Jesus came to die on a cross. Christmas is bloody, guys. Don't let anyone tell you anything else. Jesus was born so that He could bear the wrath of His heavenly Father for our sin. That's why Jesus came. And the cross has always been God's plan to bring us home. I mean, think about this. As Christians, there could have been a, a, a vast number of different icons and uh, family crests that we could have as Christians. I mean, we could have had a dove. We could have had a crown. You know, for a while in the early church, they had the, the Jesus fish uh, that was kind of for the underground church to, to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But you know what our family crest is? It's the cross. And the cross means one thing. Death. So that's where we're going today. Y'all excited? <laughs> Good deal. So here's, here's the theme verse we've had for this series. It comes from John 14.23. If anyone loves Me, John writes, or Jesus says, John writes, He will keep My Word and My Father will love Him. And get this right here. And we will come and make our home with Him. God's plan, His love, has always been to make His home with us again. So today, we're going to look at how Jesus came to bring us back to the Father. And here's the reality. Every single one of us in here, we have daddy issues, okay? Now, some of us have daddy issues with our physical father. We all, actually, we all do. Some of them are more drastic than others. Issues of disconnection and, and uh, just the way that sin has in, impacted us. But we all have daddy issues with our Heavenly Father that got to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus came to fix our daddy issues. That's why He came. And so i got four points on where we're going today. It's kind of four, four B words. So you ought to be able to remember this. And these words are also a great tool for you to, to remember the Gospel story. There are these right here. Banished. We were banished from God's presence. Bruised. Jesus was bruised for our redemption. Bound. Satan is bound because of Jesus' victory in His life and His death and His resurrection. And blessed. That is our life in Christ. So let's dig in. Banished, part one. This is our story. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3.15. I want to show you from Genesis 3 that the cross was the plan from the beginning of time. So let's dig in here. Genesis 3.15, we're going to look at verses 22-24 through 24 as well. And let me... Let me, let me remind you, if, if you're unfamiliar with Genesis 3 here, this is right after the fall of man. This is right after Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is right after. This is how, this is how God addresses Satan. Here's what He says to him. I will put enmity. That's not a word we use very often. Enmity. 
hostility, rage between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, and, and you shall bruise his heel. Then skipping forward to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of the life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned each way to guard the way to the tree of life. Banished. Humanity was banished from the perfect presence of God that we experienced in the garden from the creation of the world. The Scriptures say we could walk in the cool of the day with God and enjoy His presence. I mean, think about that. Think about going on a walk with your best friend in the cool of the day. You weren't sweating. You were enjoying life. That's our relationship with God. That's where we intended to live before God's presence. So that word enmity is interesting. So there's this kind of promise. There's going to be enmity between us and Satan. We, f- we feel that, right? We feel that enmity. We, we feel that hostility. We feel that rage. But there's this little promise. Some call it the first Gospel or the Proto-Euangelion. If you want to get fancy. Bust that out at, at Christmas dinner. They'll, they'll love it. There's this promise. And you can easily read over it in your, you know, in January where you start your Bible reading plan and you get all the way through Genesis and then you kind of give up. Uh, maybe that's just me. Um, you can easily read over this, okay? He shall bruise your head. You, he shall bruise your head. It's talking about the coming Messiah, the, the descendant. And, and this is to, to Satan. But you shall bruise his heel. So, so a, a blow to the heel is not a crushing blow. A blow to the head is a crushing blow. There's a promise that there's going to be a descendant from Adam and Eve that will ultimately deliver the final blow to the enemy. We don't know how that's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. There's a promise there. Secondly, in in verse 22 here, it says, the man has become like us. So when they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had the same wisdom that, that God has. But they gained that wisdom unlawfully. They, they gained that wisdom in rebellion, in deceit. And so as punishment for their sin, they had to be cast out from the garden from the perfect presence of the Lord because their sin, their rebellion, their deceit had to be dealt with because God can't be just without dealing with that sin. So they were banished from the presence of God. And that sin had to be dealt with. So as they took that long walk out of the garden. There's this hidden promise as we talked about. That they would one day receive the benefits of the tree of life again. That perfect presence with God. No fear. No fear of judgment. No fear of shame. Just vulnerability and openness before God. No need to hide. No need to pretend. 
But how would they once again gain access to the tree of life? Well, it would be through a different tree. Through the tree of Calvary's cross. Because Jesus would have to be bruised. He was born to be bruised. He was born to go on Calvary's cross. So point two, bruised. Jesus had to be bruised, beaten, and listen to this, forsaken by His Father. Separated from His Father. And I'll say this, Jesus ultimately defeats Satan. He binds Satan to His life and death and resurrection. But the cross, friends, is ultimately about the Father and the Son. It's about the Father and the Son. It's about the Father pouring His wrath out against sin. His hatred against sin out on His Son, Jesus. This is a Father and Son thing that we look at here. And it's all because of the depth of our sin and the depth of His love. The cross is the only way to bridge the two. So let's look at Isaiah 53 because this this narrative from Genesis 3 kind of begins to play out more. And there's this prophet Isaiah that God meets with and He reveals His Word to him. And Isaiah prophesies. And he, he prophesies about the one that's going to come, that descendant that we talked about in Genesis 3. He prophesies about him. And here's what verses 7-10 through 10 say. This Messiah, this is, this is what, what His life will look like. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Doesn't sound like any Messiah that I would want. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. Listen, this is, this is heavy. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. His Son. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His sin. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but it was really about the cross. And why, why does Jesus have to suffer like this? Why does He have to... Last week we talked about this idea of being born under the law. So why does He have to be born under the law? As Hebrews chapter 2 says, He had to be made like His brothers in every way. So, so we can come back to the family. We can come back uh, to, to, to the fellowship that we had with our Father before the world began. He had to be made like us in every single way. So the cross shows us Jesus' humanity in a fashion that no other... No, no, nothing that Jesus did shows us His humanity like the cross does. Uh, and if I think if we're honest, we're a little bit afraid of Jesus' humanity. We're, we're comfortable saying that Jesus is 100% God. But I think sometimes we don't really understand what it means that He was 100% man. I mean, Megan read Matthew 27. I want to read just a little bit about it. It's about Jesus' time on the cross. And, and uh, um, there's, I'll just start reading a little bit of it in verse 39 here. And, and those who passed by Him derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders, they mocked Him. 
saying, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. But here's the reality. Could Jesus have gotten off the cross? Yes. Could Jesus have saved Himself? Yes. If He would have saved Himself, He couldn't save us. His love kept Him on the cross. For He said to them, I am the Son of God and robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Pitch black. Middle of the day. Pitch black. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The only thing He could utter was Psalm 22.1. Why have You forsaken Me? People look at this and say, well, he only, he only felt like God was forsaking Him. Well, if He only felt like it, then that means that I'm not really free from the bondage of sin. The greatest pain in all of the earth, and I want you to hear this, is a separation from our eternal Father in Heaven. It's the greatest pain in all the earth. The cross was painful because of the separation between the Father and the Son. And so if you're in here today and, and, and maybe you're not yet a Christian, I want you to consider that. You've experienced pain in this life. You have. We all have. You've never experienced the pain of the separation from the Father. You even, even today, you get to experience this common grace that God gives us. And maybe you don't even acknowledge Him. Consider the invitation that Jesus had to be separated from His Father so that we could be brought back to the Father. Our sin was so bad that God had to forsake His Son to save us. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is Elijah. He's, he's calling for Elijah. And, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it in a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His, his Spirit. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus was born. Douglas Webster says this, at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. I mean, we, we love to tell the story about the shepherds and the brightness at midnight and about light coming onto the scene after hundreds and hundreds of years of silence. There were 400 years of silence from God to His people before Jesus came on the scene. So a light shines at midnight. Shepherds, I mean the wise men, the whole bit, I mean they're going to find this Son. But He goes on to say this, at the death of the Son, there was darkness at noon. And isn't that life? Isn't that our walk in Christ? Light riddled with darkness. Darkness had to come over the land because that's exactly what was happening. Darkness was finally being dispelled once and for all for God's children. John Stott says this, and by the way, I don't endorse books too often, but there's a book that John Stott wrote called The Cross of Christ. It is a tremendous book. I mean, I got it this week and I tried to read the whole thing. It's like 400 pages. Awesome, awesome book. If you're into reading, pick that up. John Stott says this, we are not to regard the cross as defeat. And the resurrection is victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won. And the resurrection is victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. So let me ask you this. We're talking about Jesus being bruised for us. How does the horror 
of the cross affect you? I mean, when Megan was reading Matthew 27, I was getting a little bit emotional thinking about what Jesus has done to bring us back to the Father to redeem us. Does that affect you? Does Does it touch your heart when you hear that someone else, a real person, came and died for you so that you could be with your Father? John Stott says there's three truths that the cross enforces about us and God. I'll be quick here. One is this, that our sin is beyond horrible. It's beyond horrible. Uh, and I don't think we let ourselves feel the depth of sin enough. Um, and and, and I've got to be careful here, but um, I think we let ourselves off the hook of sin a little too quickly sometimes. Um, and what I mean by that is this. I mean, you see David in Psalm 51 Whenever he's crying out to God after he's had an affair, um, an extramarital relationship, and he's, he's had a man killed to cover it up, one of his, his top officers uh, in the army, all he can think about is how sick his offense is to God. He says, so I think it's Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned. All he can think about is how he's harmed his Father in heaven. How he's hurt his Father in heaven with his, with his sin. So do we allow ourselves to feel that weight of sin? I'm not talking about going to condemnation, but to, to really feel conviction of sin. Because if we let ourselves do that, if we let ourselves see our sin for as much as we can absolutely comprehend, when we hurt other people with our words and with our actions and with our thoughts, we realize that God's love must be more wonderful than we could ever imagine. But it's only if we let ourselves see the horror of our sin that we can feel the depth of that love. So when you let yourself feel the weight of that sin, you, you, you enable yourself to feel a greater magnitude for God's love. So yes, are we really that bad? Yeah, you're, probably, you're actually worse than you can realize that you are. Is He really that good? He's actually better than you, you can comprehend. And thirdly, once we get those two truths about the cross down, we, we, there's no confusion on what salvation is. Salvation has to be a free gift of God. It has to be free. It ha- if we are that bad and God still meets us in our worst absolute moments, He keeps coming to us. That's what Advent's about. Jesus keeps coming to us by His Spirit. Salvation has to be a free gift. There's no, we, we can't mix our works into it at all. It has to be God coming to us because we can't come to Him on our own. Thirdly, we said that we were going to kind of set Satan aside for a second. You know, Genesis 3 really deals with this whole idea of Satan and this enmity that exists. Well, I want to address it for a second um, because I think it's important. And it's, it's a little bit off topic but I think, we need to, I think we need to talk about this as a church. So in, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1-3, through 3, there's this, the Scriptures describe the binding of Satan. So what does it mean to be bound? It means to be tied up, uh, unable to perform at full capacity. You're bound. You, 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 it's like, have y'all ever seen... Y'all ever seen the Sandlot before? Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, the Sandlot, great, great movie. I mean, go watch it this afternoon. Great movie. The Sandlot, so there's this dog in the movie, The Sandlot, called The Beast. 
All right, and these kids play baseball out in this park, um, pick up baseball, and they keep losing the baseballs over the fence. And the beast is on the other side of the fence, and, and he is a big dog. And, and they're terrified of him. But he's behind a fence, okay? Like he's behind a fence, he's kind of on a leash, he's, he's, he's kept back, but, but even the roar of his voice scares them. And they are terrified of his presence. And it's not until they go to the owner to address, you know, to address the situation that they kind of have the authority to go in and to get their baseballs back. And I can't go into all the details, but here's the deal. Here's what I want you to think about Satan. Is Satan's, um, is his presence still in the world? Absolutely. Is his influence still, is it, is it still in the world? Absolutely. Here's the thing though, when, when a dog is on a leash like in the sandlot, he can still growl, he can still bark, he can still scare, but he's on a leash. When you're in Christ church, Satan is on a leash. He can't harm you. Does He scare us? Does He influence us? Are we tempted to believe His lies? Absolutely. He's the accuser of the brethren. Absolutely. Listen to what the Gospels say about what Jesus has done. So in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Jesus is tempted. Before His ministry ever begins, right? Jesus is tempted. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Have you ever wondered why he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness before he ever does any ministry? You ever wondered that? He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness because he wants to prove his power over him. And I, I really believe that he binds Satan when he's in the wilderness. Because at the end of those temptations, and he meets him in three different unique ways Matthew 4, Luke 4, check it out for yourself. He tempts him in all these different ways. And yet, Jesus remains faithful. Unlike us. When He came to us in the garden, we could not remain faithful. Jesus remains faithful. And then the Scriptures say in Luke 4 that uh, he, let, he departed from Jesus until, until a, a, a better opportunity would come along. You know what that better opportunity was? You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is praying right before He goes on the cross. What does He tell His disciples? Watch and pray with me so that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus binds him there. He, he gives his disciples authority to cast out demons in Matthew chapter 12. And, he, and here's what Matthew 12, 28 and 29 says. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his goods. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus, by His active obedience on our behalf, has bound the strong man. Has He crushed him? Has He completely destroyed him? No, but He's on a leash for those that are in Christ. I fully, fully believe that. John Stott goes on to say this, every Christian conversion involves a power struggle in which the devil is obliged to relax his hold on someone's life and the superior hold of Christ is demonstrated. You are held by a stronger man in Jesus' church. He's stronger. He's plundered the devil's goods, his schemes, and he is bound. He may roar, but he cannot touch you. 
I mean, even think about Job. What does this is before Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels and binds him with his life. What does the enemy have to do before he puts Job through the ringer? He has to come and ask God for permission. This is the power that God has over our enemy. I was sitting at IHOP this week. IHOP is one of my morning offices. Um, it's a good one. Um, and the ser- I was waiting for the guy I was having a meeting with, and the server came up and she said, Oh, what you reading? Kind of making small talk. And I was like, oh, Just about the binding of Satan. <laughs> and she said, Oh, and get this. She said, Oh, I, man, I wish he was bound. I wish he was bound. And I thought, You know, I wonder how many Christians, because she had told me she was a Christian before that. I said, I wonder how many Christians believe that He's still on the loose with the same authority that He had before. I mean, what fear, what terror do we live in when we hear His accusations? We live like, when we live like Satan has free reign over the world, we are, um, we're not tapping into the greatest power that we have in the world, which is Christ's victory on the cross and in His life over the enemy Himself. So you may, you may think of Scriptures that are contrary to this, like 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or Romans 16.20, which talks about the, 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 the defeat of Satan in a future tense. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But church, Jesus Himself said it. The enemy is bound. The, strong man, the stronger man has bound the strong Man. And so how are we to see the devil? I mean, this is a key reason why Jesus came. How are we to see the devil? There are two, Michael Green says there's two opposite attitudes that the devil would be pleased for us to assume. So these are the two things that the devil would love for us to believe about him. One is this, uh, is, is for us to be excessively preoccupied about the prince of evil. So all we're thinking about is this, the devil made me do it. That's all we're thinking about. And you've been around people like that before. The devil made me do it. So the, the devil would love for us to live like that. Or the other one is this. It's on the other end of the spectrum. Is that of excessive skepticism about His very presence. Church, in Christ, His power is gone. His presence is still around. His influence is still around. Even, even like in the Sandlot, that, that illustration that I used. I mean, the beast had power even though he had power over those guys playing baseball even though he was behind the fence, right? They were terrified of him. But in Christ, we have victory uh, over the enemy. Let's move on to talk about our last point here. Blessed. This is my favorite point here. This is good. I want to read I want to read from Colossians 2, Megan read it earlier. I want to read from Colossians 2, and I want you to hear what the cross has accomplished for you, church. And for those that are not yet Christians, what the cross could accomplish for you if you place your faith in Jesus. Listen to this. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses, all our sins, forgiven them all, And how did He do that? By canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what did He do in nailing that to the cross? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So two things, we see that two things make us blessed people if we're in Christ. If Jesus has come to make us home through the cross, come to make us home with us, how are we blessed? Well, forgiveness and triumph over the evil. And those are the two things we see from those Scriptures. So it says, God has made us alive together with Him through forgiving, for forgiving our guilty hearts. So because Jesus has come and died, you and I are forgiven people. I'm amazed how often I live like an unforgiven person. I just confess to you. I mean, I live like I still need to get on the cross and bear the weight of my sin. I do that more often than I'd ever care to recognize. And John 14 says that when we live like that, we're living as spiritual orphans. Not as family members that have a seat at the table. We're living as orphans. The Scriptures say that He has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Now tell me, how far is the east from the west? How far is it? I don't know. It's got to be a really long way though. I mean, I'm guessing you know that space exploration can't take us there yet. I don't know. Um, it's far. It's, it's, it's an impossible distance away. He's cast it that far away. And it was our sin that put Him on the cross. And it was His love that held Him on the cross so that we could experience the full forgiveness of the Father. Forgiveness, church, is the power of the church. It is the glue that holds us together. It, the grace of God. The for, this is why in, 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 the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we're, we're taught specifically to pray for forgiveness. And the measure of forgiveness that we receive is the measure of forgiveness that we give. Forgiveness is key in the Christian life. And Jesus is the one that has given us the ability to forgive through His grace toward us. And uh, there's a certain pride about talking about forgiveness. I mean, Megan and I are trying to teach our kids just how to repent. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's just, it's like, okay, well, we want to teach them to repent, but it's like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. You know, it's just kind of this rote kind of thing that we go through. And we really want it to touch their hearts and for them to be reconciled to their brothers and sisters for throwing Legos at one another and wrecking and ransacking sister's dollhouse. You know, we really want them to be reconciled, but it's a hard concept to, 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 to teach. And the reason is our pride gets in the way. It's like we don't want God's forgiveness, that we would rather earn it ourselves, the problem is, is that we can never earn forgiveness. There's not a tall enough wall that we could build, a big enough ladder to get to God. We can never get forgiveness on our own. But I'm reminded uh, of the power of forgiveness. And there's, there's been two situations here recently with, with folks that I share life with. And one had to do with a marital conflict. Um, and, and as I was talking to this guy, uh, he, he was just really really upset about the situation and just thought there was maybe maybe that he had blown it past repair. And I just simply said, hey, have you, have you asked your wife for forgiveness? Have you, have, you, have you repented? Have you asked her for forgiveness? And his report back to me later that week was, dude, you're never going to believe what happened. I mean, God met us and it's like we're, we're, everything's good to go. God works through our humility when we ask 
for forgiveness. Another was a young man that uh, had been a part of New City and uh, great, great dude. Um, went through a tough time and just kind of bailed on the church, bailed on relationships and avoided us. Well, God's Spirit brought him back and I was sitting in a coffee shop with him this week and he said, man, I just, can you just, can you forgive me for, for the way I behaved? And I was kind of, on the inside, I was a little bit upset with the situation. I was like, man, we invested all this time and really wanted to share deep life and you just ran away. But when he asked for that forgiveness, you know what God's grace did? It melted me. It, it melted my heart. It melted, I wanted to you know, hold things against him and, and, and bring things up and it just all went away. Because that's what forgiveness does. That's what the cross does when it's centered uh, in our life. And the last thing is this, is that um, in Jesus, we triumph over evil. So listen to these three things from verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So what did He do? He took the weapons of the devil away. All bark, no bite. You know what I'm saying? That's who the devil is to us now. All bark, no bite. What else? did He do? We well, put Him to open shame. So in the cross, the cross is this symbol of weakness, of, of, of pain, of, uh, re- of rebellion, uh, of justice. Well, it's now the sign of our greatest strength. It's the thing, it's the thing that we've spent our lives avoiding. Weakness. As, as good Americans, we don't want to be weak. But then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, my power, he's, he's quoting Jesus, my power is made perfect in weakness. This is why the cross is, is our family crest as a church, as, as, as a body of believers, because our power, His power is manifested, it's made perfect in our weakness. So we can die to ourselves. And thirdly, we triumph over the devil because Jesus has endured the cross and death has not held Him. So, the question to you is, is how do you experience the benefits of the cross? How do you experience the forgiveness from the Father? Have you, have you, have you asked God for forgiveness for your sin? Even, even the sin that, that you think is really not that big of a deal. It's a great offense to God. Have you experienced the humility of coming to Him and asking like a child, like He teaches us to, for forgiveness for grace? Is there anyone in your life right now that, that you are withholding forgiveness for? You're going to see them Christmas Eve lunch. You're dreading it. You're thinking about how can I stay in the other room and not go to the table with them? Is there anybody in your life that you really need to be reconciled with? Does the grace of God need to melt you like my heart has been melted recently through the forgiveness that the cross brings? Is there anyone that you need to Give forgiveness to. You've been holding a grudge for way too long. It's a family member that you know you just you just you just can't make it work. It's worth the effort. It's always worth the effort because Jesus went to the cross. We've got we've got millions in the bank, trillions in the bank with the cross. Yet we got to use it. We got to use it for the advancement of the gospel. Utilize the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. So let's pray as we go to uh, the table uh, today, church. Father, we thank You that, uh, that Your grace is sufficient for us, that Your power is made perfect in weakness, that You, uh, 
have given us victory over the evil one, that You have given us victory over the Father's wrath that we deserve in the cross. We're thankful that the cross was always the plan, that it wasn't this plan B situation. It, wasn't, it didn't catch you by surprise. He was born to die so that we could live. Christmas is bloody. Any other truth is a lie. It's not a truth. Any other, any other thing we might believe about Christmas is a lie. Christmas is bloody. So Father, I pray that the blood of Jesus would wash over us this morning. That we would be melted by the grace of God and that that blood would extend to those that we are in relationship with as we choose to forgive. We choose to extend grace because none of us deserve it. So Father, meet us this morning. Meet us in Your goodness and in Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.